I'll help you catch him, Clarice. Imagine if we tried to do this entire podcast as Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis. (laughs) Nah, I can't do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis, your movie trivia and discussion podcast. Please don't forget to like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash screenfacts. Let us know if you have any questions or comments. You can also tweet me at Jason Davis Voice or email screenfacts at yahoo.com. Please subscribe for free in the iTunes store to automatically get new episodes every Wednesday. Well, joining me once again on the podcast is my brother from another mother. hi the one and only Mr. Tim Donnelly. The one and only. That's a lot of pressure to put on me right <laughs> off the bat, man. That's a lot to live up to. I think you could do it. Thanks. So uh, this is a special episode of Screen Facts. Very special episode. This is a uh, by request, a fan request. So I got to give a shout out to my good friend Janelle, whom uh, fans of the podcast might remember, allowed me to share her story, why the Karate Kid was so meaningful to her. She has specially requested this podcast for Silence of the Lambs. So Janelle, this one's for you. In Enjoy. <laughs> All of you enjoy. So the movie where you, we are going to discuss today is uh, Janelle's favorite film, The Silence of the Lambs. The Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Major spoilers coming up. If you've never seen the movie, stop listening now. If you've please. never seen the movie, what the hell are you waiting for? See the movie. And then listen to the podcast. Yes. Okay. 25 years old this year. On Valentine's Day of this year. That's right. 25th anniversary of the release. It holds up pretty well. I agree. I got to say, you know, I hadn't seen it in a while. And the funny thing is when Janelle suggested it, I was kind of like, you know, it's a good movie. I have a copy of it. I like it. Right. But I don't know if I like it enough to want to talk about it for 30 minutes or so. Yeah. But I got to say, after watching the movie again... I think we're going to be good to go. It uh, it holds up. <laughs> it really does. After 25 years, my friend, it holds up. It's a, it's, it's a good scare fest. Yeah, it's really, really, really well done. Of course, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins are the stars of the movie. Yes. Directed by Jonathan Demme. Thomas Harris wrote the novel. Took right, him six years novel. to write the novel. And Ted Talley wrote the screenplay. Right. Estimated budget of $19 million. Domestic gross of $130.7 million. Worldwide gross of $272.7 million. Yeah, it did well. It was, it was a big hit at the box office. It was a, a kind of a word of mouth hit. Not only was it a big hit at the box office, it was a big hit at the Oscars. Sweeping the Oscars, baby. Yeah. Clean sweep. Silence of the Lambs became the third film to win the top five Oscars. Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Screenplay. The other two were um, 1934's It Happened One Night, starring Clark Gable, and 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So as of the airing of this podcast, only three movies have swept the big five at the Oscars. And it's also uh, the only horror film to win an Oscar for Best Picture. Uh, There were four others that have been nominated, The Exorcist, Jaws, The Sixth Sense, and Black Swan. Nice. Your definition of of horror might be different from my definition of horror, which might be different from someone else's definition of horror. It's very subjective. I personally wouldn't consider this a horror film necessarily. This movie, definitely a thriller. Yes. Psychological thriller. No doubt. And you're talking to someone who was raised on slasher flicks right. of the late 1970s and all the 1980s. So yeah. that's that's my definition of horror. Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, etc. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. You know. I agree. The movie, by the way, also scored Golden Globes for Best Drama, Best Actress in a Drama, Best Actor in a Drama, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Nice. So this, this was a big, big award winner. It was. And as we get deeper into the podcast, you'll see that at the beginning of the movie's uh, really inception before it got underway and filming began, there's really no way that this should have ended up winning 
everything it won. There was a movie essentially made by uh, like a slew of replacement players, for <laughs> lack of a better word. The two leads, really, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins, they were not the first choices for these roles, believe it or not. You know, Jodie Foster lobbied very hard for the role, though. Yes, she did. The thing is, as far as the casting is concerned, uh, Jodie Foster, she wanted to option the rights to the movie. Okay. But uh, believe it or not, Gene Hackman beat her to it. Okay. Gene Hackman optioned the rights to the movie because he wanted to direct and star in it. So Jodie Foster's interest had to be put on the back burner for a while until Gene Hackman was eventually convinced, I think by his daughter, that the movie was too violent and was going to be too controversial. And Gene Hackman, who had just got done going through the controversy of being in Mississippi Burning, okay. I don't think he wanted to be in another controversial movie. Okay. So he backed out, allowing Jodie Foster to step in. Okay. There's a theme in the movie about uh, quid pro quo. You tell me things, I tell you things. Right. In a real life example of quid pro quo, the movie studio Orion wasn't really sold on the idea of Anthony Hopkins playing Hannibal Lecter, and director Jonathan Demme wasn't completely sold on the idea of Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling. So head of Orion Studios, Mike Metavoy, sat Jonathan Demme down, and they had a come-to-Jesus meeting. <laughs> and he says, look, I'll make you a deal. Quid pro quo, you take Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling, and I'll agree to Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, and they did a literally a quid pro quo. Wow. And that's how that casting was accomplished. Jonathan Demme originally wanted to cast Michelle Pfeiffer as, yes. as Clarice. Yes. And she turned down the role for the same reason. It was too violent. Because it was too violent, yeah. yeah. Jonathan Demme said over 300, 300 <laughs> actresses were considered for the role of Clarice Starling. Wow. Um, and not just M Michelle Pfeiffer, you're right, was his initial choice. Right. Because they had worked together on uh, Married to the Mob. But uh, Gina Davis was in consideration, Melanie Griffith, and Meg Ryan. Wow. We're all considered for the part. Now, that would have been interesting just because Meg Ryan had never done anything like this. Right. I mean, she was like the rom-com queen at that time. Exactly. Would have been interesting to see her take on it. But as you and I have talked about in previous podcasts, yes. you can't picture anybody no. else in these now, roles. Now, Jodie Foster, you, you know, she she knocks it out of the park. She She's really amazing. does. She does. Know? And Anthony Hopkins. I, I can't say enough good things about Anthony Hopkins. You know, we're watching the movie the other night, and I'm just sitting there going, he is so fucking good. Yeah, yeah. Man. And the thing about him, he's so measured in his right. Performance. Right. And he's such a despicable character, but at the same time, you're kind of rooting for the yeah, guy. Yeah, you root for him. You kind of want him to escape at the end, and yeah. you're happy when he does. He wins Best Actor with only 16 minutes of screen time. That's it. You, you could argue that he's more of a supporting yeah, role than a, than a lead role. It's the second shortest to ever win Best Actor. David Niven in Separate Tables in 1958. Wow. Came in at 15 minutes, 38 seconds nice. of screen time. Nice trivia. I got to say, this movie without Anthony Hopkins, who knows how good it's going to yeah. be. I mean, the, you know, maybe somebody else, obviously somebody else is going to play Hannibal, but are they going to sure. be as good? Are they going to? Right. That That's the question. When you think of some of the other actors that were considered to play the part, names like Jack Nicholson, Sean Connery, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Jeremy Irons, they were all considered for the role of Hannibal Lecter. All great actors. Yes. Jeremy Irons turned it down because he had just done uh, Reversal of Fortune. He right? just played, I think, uh, yeah, Klaus von Bülow. Yeah. Remember, yeah, he didn't want to play another uh, bad guy, <laughs> yeah. he said. Right? Yeah. Another, another creepy doctor. But Anthony Hopkins, the whole thing with the accents yeah. and how measured he is, the fact that he, he very rarely blinks. Right. That was a conscious choice yes. on his part, right? Yes, not, it was. Not to blink. Yeah, he had a friend in England that uh, didn't blink a lot, and wow. and it really you know made people creeped out. Right. 
So he kind of took a, a, <laughs> a notice of that. And he said, hey, I'm going to use that. <laughs> it worked pretty well for him in the movie, too. Hey, wh- whatever. You know, it's it's interesting when you hear these stories about the, the various things that actors pull from different people, from their friends, from uh, from various facets of their life. I also saw an interview with Anthony Hopkins that said um, he wanted Lecter in certain scenes to be dressed in white mm-hmm. because Anthony Hopkins always found it uh, very frightening to go to the dentist's office. Yes. Because the, the dentist was all dressed in white and it was just so <laughs> so antiseptic and so clean that it creeped him out. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because that would just show the blood that much more. Exactly. That scene yeah. toward the end where he, he beats the guards and he's oh, all yeah. dressed in white yep. and he just covered it. Yeah, it works. When his pulse doesn't go over 85? Even when he ate her tongue. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, that guy, the guy that played the doctor, well, he was on Boston Public, He right? was on Boston Public I as the so. vice principal. Yeah, Anthony Held, yeah. I believe, is the actor's name. He's amazing, too. Oh, he's great. Uh, what a Dr. Chilch. Such a slimy scumbag of a, of a character. Yeah. Ah, so good. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh. Clarice Starling was chosen by the American Film Institute as the sixth... Greatest film hero out of 50. Okay. Uh, the highest ranked female on the list. And Hannibal Lecter chosen as the number one greatest film villain, also out of 50. Again, amazing when you mm-hmm. think about the fact that Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins were not originally wanted for these roles. Yeah. Ted Levine. Probably should talk about Ted Levine Let's, let's talk about uh, Buffalo Bill himself, <laughs> James Gum. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen him in anything else. I probably have and don't realize it. Yeah. He's he's been in a lot of other stuff. He's yeah. a really really good character actor. Yeah. He was on a on uh, on an FX series that only lasted two seasons that I loved called The Bridge. Okay, uh, and he was great in that. He was also in the uh, I think the 2006 I might be screwing up the year remake of Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, okay. He was in that. So he, he's, you've seen him in a lot of All stuff. Right. Yeah. You might just. Uh, not remember that you've seen him in a lot of things. He's another one of those guys that has a certain look. Yeah. That's sort of creepy. <laughs> yeah. They said when he came in for the audition, he was so terrifying and so creepy and so menacing that they knew right there that he had nailed the role. And the actress who plays Catherine Martin, mm-hmm. the, the final victim of Buffalo Bill, the senator's daughter, the actress is Brooke Smith. Okay. Brooke Smith said she went up to Ted Levine afterward and goes, how did you do that? And Ted Levine says, I don't know. I was really nervous, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, so I just drank a, a whole lot of coffee before I went in there. And Brooke Smith says, to this day, if she gets nervous before going into an audition, she'll just drink a lot of coffee before she goes in. That seems and like the last thing you want Levine. to do. Yeah. That's pretty cool, though. Whatever works. The other thing that was kind of cool in the movie, too, was when the senator was making a plea for Catherine's life. Yes. She kept saying her name. Her name, right. My daughter, Catherine. My little girl, Catherine. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, they allude to it in the movie, too, that, oh, you know, give her the name so that she's a person instead of just a victim. As a human being instead of a thing. Right. There's a moment there in the scene where Catherine is down in the hole and, you know, it's the famous line, you know, it places the lotion in the basket It does this whenever it's told. There's a moment there where, where Catherine says, you know, please, my mom, she'll, she'll give you whatever you want, please. I, I just want to see my mom. And this is a credit to Ted Levine. If, if you look in his face and in his eyes, I think there is a moment there where he does see her as a human being yes. for a second. And then he snaps himself out of it and refers to her as it. It places the lotion in the, you know, put the lotion in the basket. But yeah. for a second, he sees her as a human being. The other thing, too, is how distraught he is when she has his dog. Yes. Yeah. You know, when she gets the dog. And and we don't. I don't really believe she's going to hurt the dog. I don't think so either. The cool thing about her character is she does 
what you would hope a victim in that situation would do. Anything she can. Anything she can. You sure. Know, she she fights back. She yells at him. She screams. She she works out a, a contraption to to trap his dog so mm-hmm. that he'll let her go. All of the actors that are in in the main roles in this movie all did a lot of research. Obviously. Yes. You know they they spent time like the FBI agents spent time with real FBI agents. Right. Ted Levine studied a lot of the serial killers that were well known at the right. time. Right, his character of Buffalo Bill is a is a composite, I think, of three yes. serial killers. Yes, Ed Gein, who skinned his victims. Mm-hmm. Ted Bundy, who used the cast on his hand as bait to uh, convince women to get into his van. Right, they got that from Ted Bundy. Right, and uh, Gary Heidnick, who kept women that he kidnapped in a pit in his basement. Right. So they kind of made all three. The other thing, too, that was kind of interesting that I read about the Buffalo Bill character, the dance that he does, mm-hmm. it's in the book, but originally it wasn't in the screenplay. Not right, it wasn't in the script for the movie. Which I think is very interesting because it's kind of a pivotal part of the movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's integral to the character of Buffalo Bill, I think. And um, oddly enough, it was improvised on set between Jonathan Demme and Ted Levine. Jonathan Demme said, hey, Ted, you know, do you, do you want to do the dance? And Ted said... <laughs> Okay, sure. Let's give it a try. Let's wow. see what I came up with. And he just he came up with the dance there. The tuck and roll. The tuck and roll. <laughs> very creepy and very unsettling. Earlier in the podcast, we uh, we debated a little bit about whether or not this qualifies as a horror movie. If you think about it, there really isn't a lot of violence shown on screen right. in the movie. Most of it's implied right. or you see the aftermath right. the of the violence. Right. And that was, a, that was a conscious decision made by the filmmakers to not show a lot of on-screen violence because they wanted the movie, which they knew was going to be controversial going into it, to appeal to as wide a mass audience as possible. And that, by the way, is probably why it garnered all the awards that it did. Right. Because I think if you start throwing in all that gore... Right. Exactly. It does cheapen it a little it bit. It does. Yeah, I think psychological thrillers are even scarier. I agree with you when you say that there were things in this movie that could have been over the top, but weren't. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it garnered so much praise and so many Academy Awards. Going back to uh, to casting, mm-hmm. Mike Metavoy, the head of Orion Studios, he wanted Robert Duvall to play Hannibal Lecter. Wow. But director Jonathan Demme thought that Duvall would be too over the top. Oh, that's interesting. Jonathan Demme was attracted to the idea of Anthony Hopkins playing Hannibal Lecter because Demme thought that Anthony Hopkins was so wonderful as the quote-unquote good doctor mm-hmm. in the 1980 film The Elephant Man. Demi was intrigued by the idea of, okay, so what if the good doctor went bad? Okay. Which is why he wanted Anthony Hopkins. Okay, that makes sense. Even if Robert Duvall in past roles was a little bit more over the top. Right. He's a pretty good actor. Robert Duvall's a great actor. He's phenomenal. And um, if you want to talk about sort of irony and things coming full circle, mm-hmm. when Ted Talley won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars that mm-hmm. year. Yeah. His award was presented to him by Robert Duvall. Oh, how funny. Yeah. That's really cool. That's good stuff. So uh, Jack Crawford, who's Clarice's boss yes. in the movie, was based on real-life FBI special agent John E. Douglas, mm-hmm. uh, who was an early member of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit. Right. Very well-known and well-respected as an expert in the field. He worked very closely with Scott Glenn. The interesting thing is after they were working together for a while, Glenn thanked him and he said uh, how fascinating it was to be allowed into his world and all that kind of stuff. And Douglas said, well, if you really want to get into my world, you should listen to an audio tape of serial killers doing their thing. Oh, man. And he, uh, he did. He listened to less than a minute of one. He had to stop it. And he's never forgotten it. It's right. like it scarred him for life. Right. Much. John, right. John Douglas had an audio recording yes. of serial killers in the act of committing. Torturing, a, committing raping, a crime. and murdering two teenage girls. Oh my God. 
I can't even imagine. I mean, you see things in movies, and and it's real easy to disconnect because it's a movie, and you know it's right. a movie, right? But you know, when you know it's the real deal, yeah, it's got to be terrifying. And if only hearing a few seconds of that affected Scott Glenn that way, yeah, I can only imagine what maybe John Douglas has rolling around in his head. Oh God, it's got to be um, brutal. Like recordings like that, things he's seen, things he's read, things he's heard. I mean, this is a guy who helped uh, profile the trailside killer in San Francisco, Wayne Williams, who was convicted of the Atlanta child murders in the 1980s, uh, the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. I don't know if that's a world I want to be in. No, no thank you. Mm. You talk about a stressful job. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be terrible. That's what you do all day long. What do you do for fun? Yeah, right. Well, how, do, how do you unwind after, yeah. after that? It's got to be really you know, tough to shake that yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, and, if, you, if you're a human being with a soul, that, yeah. that's got to stick with you. Oh, it's got to be brutal. Got to stick with brutal. you. Brutal. That kind of reminds me of the scene in the movie where they go to see the, the body that was underwater for you know the period of time. Right, right. They pull the tarp back and, mm-hmm. and they, they're taking pictures and, and making notations of all the different things. Right. And you got to give it up for Clarice in that situation. Cause, and, and that's the other thing. I totally forgot that she wasn't actually an agent yet. No, she was, uh, she was she still was, a trainee. Yeah. She's this lamb being thrown to the lions. <laughs> yeah. She really is. Yeah. You know, n- no pun intended, but yeah, yeah. she's a and, lamb being thrown to the lions. And that's why the character is so amazing because yeah. she comes in and handles it like a pro. Very I mean, much so. Just amazing. Even Hannibal's surprised. Jack yes. Crawford sent a trainee to interview me. Yeah. <laughs> he must be getting desperate. Yeah. Jonathan Demi was once quoted as saying, this movie is about a woman trying to save the life of another woman and confronting the worst of the male gender who put obstacles in her way. Yeah. And the whole idea that she's trying to save this girl the way she tried to save the lamb. Right, right. Yeah, you know, and a lot Hannibal of symbolism and, that, yeah. and metaphorical things going on Hannibal there. Hannibal latches on to that. Very much so. Oh, man. Yeah. The scenes where he's in the hospital in Baltimore mm-hmm. and he's in the glass cell. Yeah. That was actually done by design. The glass. The glass. Yes. The production designer, Christy Zia, suggested that glass be used for uh, Lecter's cell because she didn't really think it would be good aesthetically to be right. shooting through bars the entire movie. Right. And it works really well. It works, and I think it elevates well. it elevates his performance a little too, yeah. because you know you really can lock in on him. Yeah, Hopkins especially said it was almost like a tarantula in a glass jar. Yeah, you know, really was like a spider kind of trapped. Yeah. And Hopkins was really once he was bolted in there. I mean, that wasn't a real location. His cell is a set, and they had you know walls that could move because you needed to put the camera in certain places. But for the most part, Hopkins said that once he was in that cell, he was kind of bolted into that cell. And it wasn't like in between takes, he could go, okay, guys, I'm going to step out for a coffee break and a cigarette. (laughs) When he was in that cell, he was pretty much in that cell for the duration of the shooting that day. But he also said that he preferred it that way because it lent an air of authenticity to his performance. Sure. Next time you go back, watch for this. The first time that he and Clarice Starling meet... It's supposed to represent a downward descent into hell. Okay. How Clarice Starling starts at the top level, and then she and Chilton descend the stairs and descend further and descend further, and ultimately they are supposed to be symbolically descending into hell. Even the colors change. Yeah. Toward the end, their faces are, uh, I guess, kind of bathed in red. Mm-hmm. When Chilton is telling her the story of, uh, you know, the nurse leaned over to take his pulse and this is what he did to her. And he just shows her a photo. Yeah. And you don't see what's in the photo. You can only imagine how bad it is. But you can see Clarice Starling's 
face. Mm-hmm. And you get, like you said, you can only imagine what's in that photo. And finally, they descend into the devil's lair and come face to face with the devil himself, who, oddly enough, defies expectations by standing erect with perfect posture, mm-hmm. looks at Clarice Starling, smiles, and says, Good morning. <laughs> And you know, it's funny too. That's so good. It's amazing. And one of the things that Sue uh, mentioned when we were watching that I thought was kind of funny too was that, of course, his is the last cell at the end of the well, at the, right. end of the She's got to walk past. Got to walk past all, all the all scum, the... <laughs> especially Migs. Oh, multiple Migs. Oh, multiple Migs in the next cell. He hissed at you. What did he say? <laughs> and I gonna... won't repeat. We won't what repeat. He said, it's but... unnecessary. Right. Right. But what he does to her is even more disgusting. Yeah. As she walks away. Yeah. And he pays for it. He does. <laughs> and that's one of the fascinating things about, to me, about Hannibal Lecter and mm-hmm. why he's such a complex character. Does he eat his victims? Yes. Is he psychopathic? Yes. And yet he's urbane and sophisticated and intellectual and polite. And protective of Clarice. And ve- right? There, there's like this this relationship, almost love ship thing going on between her and Hannibal. And he says, after Miggs does what he does to her, mm-hmm. he yells for her to come back and he says, I would not have had that happen to you. Discourtesy is unspeakably ugly to me. <laughs> he values courtesy, politeness, and manners. Well, that's what she says later on in the movie when he escapes. Right. And her colleague, yes. you know, is concerned for her Aren't well-being. Aren't you afraid he's going to come after you? And Clarice is like, no, no. He, would, he wouldn't consider he, that he would uh, consider that. He would consider that rude somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Clarice finds out the next day or the day after. Then Crawford tells her they find Miggs dead in his cell the next day. Right. Because he has swallowed his own tongue. And they make it very obvious that Hannibal Lecter was whispering to Miggs all night. Right. We never find out exactly what the hell he was whispering to Miggs, but clearly the reason why Miggs is dead is because Hannibal talked him into killing himself. Right. And you know that he did that to stick up for Clarice. Right. Right? Right. If he wasn't such a jerk and so rude to Clarice, Hannibal wouldn't have talked him into killing himself. Right. That's oddly romantic. And that's why in, you root in, for in the guy. In a perverse sort of way. That's why you root for the guy. That's why you're you're, you're kind of a little bit conflicted. Especially when you see the, the doctor being such a dick. Right, right. You're kind of like, good. You deserve to get eaten. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Great stuff. So I've talked about a lot of comedies on the podcast. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes up a lot when we're talking about comedies is improvisation on the set. Right. And you kind of expect that a little bit because especially when you have actors that come from that background. Right. And they just know how to come up with funny stuff on the spot all yeah. the time. And it usually, you know, makes the scenes better. You don't really expect improvisation to be a thing in a movie like this. Right. And yet there are things you mentioned before about uh, the dance being improvised on the spot. On the set, yeah. But a couple of other things were improvised in this movie, too. The slurping sound that Hannibal makes. <laughs> the... That was something that he ad-libbed on the set. On the spot, yeah. Um, and another thing, too, which I thought was pretty interesting, the first time Clarice meets Lecter, and he's kind of analyzing her and, and sizing her up, mm-hmm. he makes a comment about her southern accent. Good nutrition's giving you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation removed from poor white trash. Yeah. So um, she kind of has a reaction. She's kind of horrified by yeah. that. That's that's real. Yeah, it's real because she was not expecting him to mock the Southern yeah. accent. Anthony in the scene. Hopkins is making fun of Jodie Foster's Southern accent. Yeah. So that that was another improvisation that happened, which is yeah. kind of interesting. That's great stuff. It is. It's really funny. <laughs> and it's interesting that they only share four scenes in they, the film. Exactly. They're together for four scenes and four scenes only. But man, 
what a great four scenes they are. Absolutely. Powerful, powerful stuff. Great, great acting. And it's kind of obvious, and Anthony Hopkins said this in an interview, that Lecter respects Starling for having the courage to come, you know, speak with the monster face-to-face. Hopkins was quoted as saying, Hannibal Lecter loves her in a way. He admires her courage, this young woman who's come to speak with Hannibal the cannibal. And Jodie Foster said, Lecter respects Starling for giving to him in a way that's just, fair, and human. She never refers to him as a monster. There is a love and a human connection between them. So there's definitely respect both ways with these characters. And yet, Lecter, because he is who he is, Lecter clearly enjoys needling Clarice Starling and toying with her a little bit. He's like a a big cat who doesn't necessarily want to eat the mouse, but he definitely wants to play with the mouse and (laughs) and bat it around a little bit, but not necessarily eat it. But you know, the great thing about that give and take with the characters is that it actually makes Clarice a stronger person and a better agent. Yes. Because, you know, if he just kind of laid down for her, that's not, she's not going to benefit from that. No, of course not. I read that the FBI allowed the film to be shot partly at Quantico because they thought that the movie would be a good recruiting tool to get more women to join the FBI. Yeah, it probably worked, too. Yeah. When she visits him in his new facility right before he escapes, Yeah, and she's reluctantly telling him the story about running away and trying Mm -hmm. to save the lamb and all that. There was supposed to be a flashback in that scene to the younger Clarice Starling. Okay. And as Jodie Foster is telling what's happening, you're supposed to see it in a flashback, but she was so good in that scene, and both she and Hopkins were so in the zone, the intensity of their performances made Jonathan Demme scrap the idea of going to a flashback. He said, you know, if I I cut away from these two brilliant actors to go to a flashback, they'll kick me out of the director's guild. Yeah, I think that was a good call. Yeah. It's really an intense scene. Jonathan Demme supposedly watched that scene and said, Jodie Foster could win an Oscar because of this scene. Wow. So, how prophetic. Yep. Another thing about that scene. Okay. (laughs) As creepy and unsettling as the movie can be, I remember very, very clearly the thing that really got the audience the most and caused the biggest kind of shock and ugh was at the end of that scene, Clarice goes to walk away and Hannibal says, oh, Clarice, you forgot your file. You forgot your paper. (laughs) And you see his finger gently scrape across her finger. Yes. And he touches her. Yes. That got the biggest reaction from people. Everybody just went, oh. Yeah. But you know what? It's funny because that to me is less creepy than the way the uh, the doctor hits on her when she first comes to the hospital. Right. Yeah. Baltimore can be a, a fun town if you have the right guy. Yeah, that's completely inappropriate. He's so slimy. You know, I mean, you almost kind of feel like, well, Lecter hasn't seen a woman in eight years, probably, right, or whatever right. it's been. And, oh, are you ever his taste, so uh, so to speak. <laughs> oh, God, that guy is so <laughs> slimy. Such a douche. So slimy. If you really think about it, it really is amazing that this movie won as many awards as it did because... Right from the get-go, a lot of Hollywood insiders thought that the uh, a screen version of Silence of the Lambs would be a miserable failure because some people don't remember, there was a movie made about Hannibal Lecter in 1986 starring William L. Peterson, directed by Michael Mann. The movie came out called Manhunter, mm-hmm. which is based on the Thomas Harris book Red Dragon. Nobody really seemed anxious to do another movie version with Hannibal Lecter in it and an FBI agent on the case of a serial killer because the first one flopped so badly. Not to mention, it's not exactly 
exactly a feel-good movie. It's really not. Traditionally, if a movie flops at the box office, there isn't a sequel for it. <laughs> right, right. Not much call for a continuation of the story, yeah. even if there are some uh, some unanswered questions left could, in the original. Could The Silence of the Lambs be the first reboot in cinema history? Not remake. Not remake. Reboot. Reboot. I don't know. You put me on the spot there. That might be a podcast for another time. All right. Maybe I'm being rhetorical when I ask that. (laughs) But I mean, you know what I'm saying? I know know, what you're saying. Nowadays, they reboot every other movie, it feels like. Everything. And even things that haven't even been out that long. Right. Maybe they felt like, okay, we we released this first version of a Hannibal Lecter story. Mm -hmm. It didn't do well. Maybe that was just, we swung at a pitch in the dirt. You know, yeah. maybe maybe we just weren't, we didn't wait for our pitch and, and this was the pitch. I mean, who knows? Sometimes it's a combination of the talent involved and call it fate, call mm. it luck, call it karma, to quote Bill Murray from Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, you Even know. John, I mean, Jonathan Demme was a very unconventional choice to direct this. Sure. He directed uh, a 1979 thriller with Roy Scheider called The Last Embrace, but by the time Silence of the Lambs was going to be made, he was mostly known for doing, I guess, what you could call quirky comedies right. in the 1980s, something yeah. wild and, and married to the mob. Yeah. And you know, and this guy's going to direct a serious film like <laughs> Silence of the Lambs? This movie probably uh, did wonders for his career. Yeah. People respected him as a director afterwards. Of course. And it did wonders uh, for Anthony Hopkins' career as well. Sure. Uh, Jodie Foster, had, I think she was already coming off an Oscar win for The Accused. Yep. And she had already had, for as young as she was, a nice uh, career of longevity yeah. in Hollywood from the time she was very young. And a child star that, that was, was more successful as an adult. That's another thing you don't really hear a lot of. Yeah. Yeah. And see you know, well-adjusted and not yep. uh, eaten up and consumed and spit out by the Hollywood machine. No pun intended. Uh, hey <laughs> <laughs> So hats off to her. Yeah. But even yeah. Anthony Hopkins said when, when he got the script, he knew that this could be a career-changing role oh, yeah. for him. And Absolutely. he had pretty much at that point all but given up on Hollywood since he was in a string of Hollywood flops since The Elephant Man he had retired from Hollywood, he went back to London to be a stage actor, mm-hmm. but then they sent him this script and he said he stopped reading it a few pages in because it was so good, <laughs> he didn't want to go on reading and be disappointed if he didn't get the role. Oh, wow. That's yeah. interesting. So uh, let's talk about the way the movie ends. Yeah. First of all, I think it's masterful how they seemingly have figured out where Buffalo Bill is located. Right. And they're going to raid the house. And they do the whole thing where they're ringing the bell, and you see the bell ringing right. in his little lair, and you think you think, think they're, they're the about house. to bust in on him, yeah. and then it's just Clarice, just to Clarice, which, by the way, would probably never ever happen in real life with the FBI. Just the way you know you're made to believe one thing is happening, right? And then it's something completely different. That is amazing. Yeah, they, filmmaking. They say that the, a movie is really made in the editing room. Yes. And that's brilliant editing. Great, great stuff. The whole sequence where she's chasing him in the house. Yeah. So in the end, of course, Clarice shoots Buffalo Bill dead. That whole sequence in the movie, they're in the dark. He's got the uh, the night vision goggles on. In reality, that entire sequence was shot in bright light. Jodie Foster is acting like she's in the dark and can't see. Well, that would make sense. Yeah. And they had to take into consideration the fact that, okay... If this were really dark, you wouldn't be able to see any shadows. So they had to light it in such a way (laughs) and position the cameras in such a way that you can't see anybody's shadow on anything. 
And there is a moment, I, I guess you call it a continuity error, where you can see quickly the shadow, I think, of Buffalo Bill's hand and gun on Clarice Starling's back. It's so intense, that scene, that, yeah. you know, the, who's thinking of that? I wasn't thinking of that. Course not, of I course not. And I wasn't thinking it when I rewatched the film in preparation for this podcast. Right. So we get to the end of the movie. Clarice gets a commendation. She's made a special agent. They're having the dinner for her. And we see the doctor on the lamb in a tropical setting and then of course the great line from Hannibal I wish I could talk but I'm having an old friend for dinner and then of course Clarice is on the other end Dr. Lecter Dr. Lecter Dr. Lecter Lecter. oh so good great stuff so good well Tim thanks for coming in as always it's amazing that we can have fun talking about a thriller right (laughs) (laughs) usually this kind of levity is reserved for uh, for the comedies we do on the podcast exactly yeah So uh, thanks for having me. And uh, once again, Janelle, thanks for the request. Yes. Good call. And thanks to you for listening. Please don't forget to like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash screenfacts. Let us know if you have any additional comments or questions. If you have any thoughts about the movie, that's where you can share them. You can also tweet me at Jason Davis voice, email screenfacts at yahoo.com. If you enjoy the show, please help us out by rating and commenting on iTunes and tell somebody. If you have friends or family that are movie fans that you think would be into this thing, let them know about it. You can also order ScreenFacts merchandise on the podcast page of jasondavisvoice.com to support the show. Show theme music by audionautics.com. Thanks to wickedradionetwork.com and our announcer Kim from kimsvoice.com. ScreenFacts with Jason Davis is a production of Jason Davis VoiceOver. Visit jasondavisvoice.com if you need a voice for a commercial, narration, promo, internet video, e-learning or training program, and more. Click on the podcast page to get information about where you can download and listen to past episodes. Listen again next Wednesday for a new episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis.